Thanks for joining us for this episode of Her Gavel, a podcast where we shatter the glass ceiling for women in law. I'm your host, Stephanie Watchman, and I've been coaching and training women attorneys all over the world for nearly a decade. Women lawyers, no matter where they are in their careers, face many challenges, frustrations, and some fantastic opportunities. On this podcast, I'll be interviewing experts to cover many of the issues I get asked about, like managing stress, career growth, law firm leadership, self-confidence, business development, and even planning for retirement. My goal is to provide you with the tools and tips you need for your own professional growth. And now let's get on with the show. Hey everybody, thanks for joining again today. We have a very, very special guest. A few months ago, I joined this group called Charter, and it's a peer advisory group where we discuss reintegration back into the office post-COVID. And I got to know Masella Dupuli there, and she is just such a wealth of knowledge, especially in the world of leadership and development. Masella is a coach, facilitator, and learning and development people strategist who has acted as a trusted partner and strategic consultant to exceptional leaders across the globe. She's had the unique opportunity to train and coach over 10,000 leaders at over 300 global companies, including Squarespace, Twitter, TED, The New York Times, my favorite, Peloton, and more. Additionally, she's conducted research on employee engagement and talent development that has been implemented in learning content at Life Labs Learning and featured in thought leadership pieces in First Round Capital, Thrive Global, and Entrepreneur. Please welcome to the show, Masella Dukuli. All right. Well, I'm so happy to have you on the show, Masala. It's, it's just great to have met you. Wonderful to meet you too, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Well, we have a lot to cover today. And uh, judging by our last conversation, we can go on for, like I said, about three days worth. But let's, <laughs> let's get started because something that you mentioned in on your website actually really got me thinking, and I've written about this in my book as well. It's like this whole idea of being a perfectionist and how do you get past that or how do you work with that, especially for like women lawyers where they have to really get it right. You can't have typos, you can't make big mistakes. And very often for the women attorneys I work with, they'll go back over and over and over and over and over again or procrastinate on the work that they have to do just with the idea that if I, they don't get it right, then it's just junk. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. So. Like you mentioned, and as I've written about, I am certainly a recovering perfectionist and I need to just like fully put it out there that I am not fully there yet, but I've made like so much progress over the past couple of years. Uh, I think one of the things that really helped me to be mindful of my perfectionism was just like how much it was actually slowing me down. Uh, the company that I work with or work at now, uh, Life Labs Learning, one of our values is 80% is uh, greater than zero. And sometimes I would be that sort of all or nothing personality when it came to perfectionism. It was like, great, I've got to do it all 115% or I'm not going to do it at all. But what that ends up doing is like preventing you from actually doing things and really trying and really learning and stewing and stewing and stewing and not really doing anything. I can so understand though, when you're in a work environment where of course 
you know, your detail orientation, your diligence is important. Like in, in a career like law, nobody wants to receive something from their lawyer that's like got a typo or whatever else. But I, I think for me, what was really powerful was pausing for a second and really identifying to myself what the benefit of just being mindful of my desire to be a perfectionist was doing or not doing for me. Like, what would be the benefit if I just took a step instead of waiting? What would be the benefit of me saying, okay, I know that like my 80% is probably somebody else's 120% right, right. and like trusting that. And I, I had to kind of like say those things to myself over and over again. And I still tell myself those things. So I, I think one of the first steps is asking yourself, like, what are you actually trying to accomplish when you sit there and like needle over something for hours and hours? And I think another thing, and this comes from my world of, you know, like business school experience is really thinking about that ROI, that return on investment. Like, am I really getting something that's that much better? after the additional hour that I've spent looking at something. Right. And so often the answer was actually no. So how do you, how do you do it in practice? Um, yes, I actually, <laughs> yeah, like what I've done that I think has helped the most has actually been giving myself uh, like sort of, I call it like perfectionist time. So for example, it might be like, I'll say, all right, fine. I have this document that I've gone over. I'm going to put no more than 30 minutes on the clock to look at it. Once that time is up, it's up, it's done. I've done what I need to do, but like, then you cap it off. Yeah. And what's nice about this is that you start to kind of learn, like, I actually don't need 30 minutes. 20 minutes is more than enough. Maybe you develop a template. Maybe what you actually end up doing are highlighting the types of parts that, uh, you know, of that document that you need to actually be mindful of reading over for the next time, instead of reading every single word painstakingly over and over and over again. So capping off some time, identifying for myself the benefit of not wasting time and energy and asking myself, like, what am I getting out of this? Is this for me or is this for other people? And I love that. I love I, that perfectionist time and capping and capping it off because I was curious about, well, how do you how do you do that? I often tell like my clients, like, ask yourself, well, why, why am I procrastinating Can, or why am I why am I being a perfectionist in this moment? What am I afraid of? Mm -hmm. And and so that gets into like a deeper thought process, but also having a practical tool, like saying, okay, you want to be a perfectionist, go for it. You've got 20 minutes. <laughs> right. Right. It's, it's a challenge, um, that I think is, is in some, it's been kind of fun because yeah. it also, it also helps you to prioritize, right? Okay. Like, cause as a perfectionist, when you sort of do it endlessly, you aren't prioritizing anything. You're not being strategic about anything. You're just like, rereading, rereading, rechecking, do, doing whatever it is, trying to sort of, you know, nail over. And again, it was also just like trusting that I know that the quality of work that I bring to the table wasn't in this place where it required hours and hours of triple checking. And I think building that into confidence, especially as women is a really important thing for us, because I think otherwise we tend to undermine all of the good that we do bring to the table. Do you think that like for women, especially who are in like professional women, that they are up against a different level of competition in terms of getting it right compared compared to their their male counterparts? Sure. I, you know, I think what's interesting is and this is what I, I hear. So I can only speak from my own experience. But like what I hear sometimes from 
men that I've worked with or experience is like this sort of like, I believe women can do it, but sometimes it looks like this or, but sometimes this type of thing, like they have an idea or some sort of bias, perhaps it's implicit. Maybe it's even very explicit in their mind about how women work. And I think what can happen is that the minute we show some sort of signal that they believe that they've seen before, whether that's through some sort of story, they've identified it elsewhere. Maybe it's another experience, TV, a book, anything. They start to say, yeah, but I told you so. I told you so. I knew it would look like this. And I think women are very aware of this. Like we're aware of the biases that impact us, you know, in life in general. And so I think what we're doing is spending a lot of time trying to combat that. And I think the irony of that is that men aren't trying to do any of that. And yes, am I saying that we're changing the system or whatever? Like I know it doesn't happen overnight, but I, I do think that there's a real reminder that men do the types of things that we try not to do all of the time. And if we can sort of very respectfully identify when it's happening, we then create examples that make it easier for other people to answer. So for example, if you're feeling like, oh gosh, I can't be expressive of my feelings because I'll come off as emotional. The next time you have a feeling that you'd like to express, consider the last time you saw a man behaving in the office or on a Zoom call in a way that was perhaps quote unquote emotional. And why is it okay for him to do, but not okay for you to do? And again, I know we're fighting against, it requires the other party to be receptive, but I I just think that the only way that we are able to change anything is if we can express ourselves fully and, and also call note to the fact that like we're humans and we're allowed to be full humans with full ranges of emotions. And we can communicate those emotions in a way that is clear and concise and useful. And it doesn't have to be that we have to be the way that maybe some men are in the office. Yeah, it's a really big challenge, definitely, especially like if you're a, a younger leader or manager or attorney, like you often will feel a little bit more maybe uncomfortable and also fearful if you make mistakes and you're like, oh God, I'm such an idiot. I'm such a moron. Why did I make that mistake? And it just has a negative impact on your confidence. Yeah. So you spend more time making sure that everything you do is so perfect and, and it's a real challenge. And I like what you're talking about in terms of implicit and explicit bias. Uh, we talked uh, the last time we, we, we met about that whole concept of implicit implicit bias and all the bias training that's happening at these offices and how one of the one of my big pet peeves is these companies and firms get a lot of this bias training and it's very good and insightful but it doesn't stick right like and yeah. even for, for women like i am so unaware of my own biases uh, and, yeah. and how do you get it to to stick more like let's just say for example you're in a meeting and somebody says, a, a man at the table says, um, interrupts you. Mm-hmm. And that's a common, that is kind of a way of, a, of, a, of this bias where it's okay to interrupt a woman, but it's not okay for a woman to interrupt a man or just yeah. little tiny, tiny little things that go on. Like, how do you address those? Yeah. So I think specifically that example, interruption, um, there are a number of reasons why it can be intimidating to speak up. So there are power dynamics, there's societal dynamics that we're used to, to your point, you know, maybe we're used to uh, being more comfortable for a man to interrupt us than we are to interrupt them, especially if they're in a position of power. But But I think this is just about 
being able to advocate for ourselves. And also, I think the other message here is for us to remember that advocating for ourselves means advocating for one another. So on one hand, if you are going to do it or you're feeling like, you know, this is an opportunity for me to do it, you can very politely say, you know, thank you so much, so and so I'm hearing what you're saying. And I'd really love to finish the thought that I was just bringing up. Ooh, and it's, it's the goal is I hear what you're saying. And you don't even have to, I would actually suggest not saying I hear what you're saying, I would suggest playing back what they've actually said sounds like you're bringing up x where it's like i've listened to you and now i want that reciprocated and you can do that kindly but i think the other place where again where we show up for others is when there are other people in the room so this is a message for men this is a message for other women who might be in the in that room hey got it and let's come back to to stephanie because i she didn't get to finish her thought and i, I think it's just really powerful when it's not just about me needing to finish but it's about we are a better team when we actually hear from one another. I love that. That is good. I haven't heard that one before. And whenever I hear something I haven't heard, I'm like, yes, I love it. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love, I love what you're bringing up. And I think that that's a great segue into this whole idea of being a great leader. A lot of the women that I'm working with, especially when I'm doing emerging uh, or women leadership programs in law firms, talk to me about, well, I don't even know what kind of leader to be because I don't necessarily have very many role models. Yeah. And I wanted to talk to you because I know you do a lot of training on this whole idea of great mm -hmm. leadership. What do you think some of the most important aspects of great leadership are? So many things. I, I think that one of the most important habits that a great leader has is curiosity. Mm. I, I think that when you find leaders who are so committed to telling, to giving advice, to showing people how it needs to be done, we're really not maximizing the talent. We're not maximizing people's ability to self-manage. Like to me, if you've hired somebody on your team and from your perspective, you have to be so directive simply just from like the perspective that you need them to, to comply to everything that you say and do, you've hired the wrong person. Right. We want to hire people who can be our thought partners, people who can step in, people who can be creative, people who can be mindful about how to actually make the best decisions for our business, for our clients, whatever it is that you're serving. So curiosity and curiosity comes into a play of being able to coach well, being able to give feedback, ask questions that really help you understand the person's thinking, their motivation, how they work, rather than just, here's what you should do. Here's what it needs to look like, because you don't get anything much out of that again, other than compliance. And, you know, that's helpful only to a point. Well, so, I think that's really true. Can I just ask a question? I want to ask a question. Oh, sure. Because I get a lot, I, I, I get I get that question a lot. Like, how do I give good feedback and be heard by the person I'm giving the feedback to? Especially for attorneys, if you're if you're uh, an attorney out there and a partner, you're maybe working with an associate, maybe working with a paralegal, where you often have to give feedback, and it is critical because there are strategies to consider or past matters to look at or typos to to refine or whatever it is. There's often very critical feedback that has to be given in order to help others become better at what they do. That's kind of like the model for the practice of law. Yeah. How do you give, what is, what is the best approach to giving feedback? Yeah, so first thing that I would say before you ever have to give feedback to anyone is to really define upfront the purpose 
of what like what feedback is in your firm or in your organization. If you don't, people are going to operate on their own sort of knowledge, experience, PTSD for what it's worth from wherever they came yes. from before you, you know, Even the word feedback is charged. Exactly. Exactly. And it's like, think about it. We're not just dealing with work life. We're also dealing with personal life while you're nobody's therapist. Sometimes as a leader, we end up falling into these positions where it feels like, oh man, was I supposed to know this about this person? But like, let's take family dynamics. So maybe growing up, Stephanie, just as an example, maybe in your family, you know, giving feedback was something that you avoided because it just wasn't culturally normal. And it felt like, you know, you were picking at somebody. And so of course that's going to be part of who you are and how you think and how you function, not only in your personal life, but at work, is it your leader's job to solve that for you? No. But I think what a leader can do is say, Hey, at X firm, when we give feedback, the purpose and intention is to help us grow as a team. The purpose and intention is to have each other's back. The purpose is an, and intention is to ensure that we have awareness of blind spots that maybe we wouldn't have if we weren't working together. And I think what's nice about this is then people are like, oh, I see here at this place, even though it feels scary for me, even though I am not sure about how to navigate it completely just yet, I understand that it's not intended to hurt me. And that that messaging is really huge. And it's something that you also have to be, I'd say, uh, able to repeat time and time again, because otherwise the implicit messages around feedback are going to be the things that shine through. So as an example, like I've worked with organizations where they'll say, yeah, we really care about feedback. But then the only time that they ever give feedback is when it comes down to comp reviews. Yep. And I'm like, well, <laughs> feedback then is associated with pay. And the only the only reason why I wouldn't give somebody feedback was when I'm maybe helping them understand why they're they're getting or not getting a raise. And then it becomes a scary thing rather than just an opportunity to learn. Exactly. So it's verbal, but it's also about action. Like where are our feedback touch points? Beyond that, I think you want to be giving feedback as quickly as you can. So yeah. not waiting for three months and then saying, oh, you know, three months ago you did X, Y, and Z. People are like, what? I, I can't even remember <laughs> what happened. And also like, it can feel really offensive. So I, I think one, I, I like to tell people no more than two weeks in between when the event or the, the behavior has happened and making sure that it's a conversation. One, making sure that we are really saying, hey, you know, Stephanie, I wanted to have a conversation with you about, you know, share some feedback about XYZ thing, but really be specific about what it is, about that meeting that we had yesterday. And then I share specifically what the case is, you know, like I specifically want to bring up that I noticed that during this meeting, you were on your phone while we were discussing, you know, the agenda. But I'm going to tell you very specifically, I'm not going to say, hey, you were distracted. I'm not going to say, hey, you were being rude. I'm not going to say, hey, you were, you know, not all paying the, attention. All the things you're actually thinking, right? Exactly. <laughs> That's a perfect way to look at it. Like, don't say the thing you're actually thinking. Step no. back and say, what was the thing that actually led me to think that thing? Because that's the data. Like you want to look at it from like an observe an observable perspective. Like imagine that you are a camera in that room. A camera doesn't know what rude is. A camera doesn't know what distracted is. A camera knows that Stephanie was on her phone. And that is much more helpful because then the person's like, oh, okay. I know how to change my behavior or not. And it just makes it much more uh, tangible and it makes the other person much more autonomous. And then the other thing that you do want to be sharing is the why, the impact statement. Hey, I'm bringing it up because 
when you do that, it makes me feel as though maybe you're not as connected to, you know, the content that we're discussing as I'd like you to be, or it makes us feel as though, you know, you aren't going to be able to follow up on your action items, you know, whatever your, your why behind giving the feedback is. And the feedback, why doesn't have to be something about the company. Maybe this is a personal thing. Maybe it's saying, Hey, I want you to grow here, but one thing that does play a role into how we grow in our work environment, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, is that what things look like, perception is everything. And if people think that you come to meetings and aren't fully present, that might impact whether or not they believe you're capable of growing or you're deserving of growing into a new role. So I want to make sure that you just know how it might look, even if it's not the reality. I think that's such great advice. I love that, especially the idea of, of being the camera, it goes back to your statement about you know being curious and, and not really passing a judgment on it, but being an observer. I love that. Hey, it's Stephanie Watchman. I want to take a quick break to tell you about a limited time discount on my online course for women in law. This is my signature program for women lawyers, and I've been offering it in-house for over 11 years with amazing success. This program was created to teach women attorneys how to compete at the highest level in their firms and grow their book of business to the high six figures. The women who have gone through this course have learned amazing leadership skills. They've learned how to do business development. They know how to have better self-confidence, presence, communication skills. It's just an amazing program and incredibly comprehensive. So for a very limited time, you can cash in on early bird pricing by going to www www.emergingwomenleadersinlaw.com forward slash early bird. Again, that's www.emergingwomenleadersinlaw.com forward slash early bird. And there'll also be information in the podcast notes. I can't wait to have you in the program. I love that kind of um, visual of just being a camera in the room and what you're observing. That is such great advice. I this is this is really helpful, and I think it's also as part of leadership. There's something that goes on as well is that you're you want to offer good guidance and positive well-being to your employees or the people that are reporting to you, and also you also have to take you know really good care of yourself in order to be able to offer care and guidance to others. And right. I know that's something we talked about in terms of like personal well-being, especially people who are super stressed out working long hours. And I know especially now with you know this whole COVID thing and back to the office thing that people are picking up slack. There's not enough employees out there in companies. There's not enough employees in law firms. I hear that all the time. There's not enough assistants. There's not enough associates. There's not enough lawyers. Like it's just everybody is really <laughs> working so hard and uh, without any kind of solid breaks in between. Any thoughts on uh, offering some balance and, and well-being? Yeah, so, you know, I think what can be really hard about balance is the cues that we take from around us. Mm. So, for example, yes. again, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Like, it's like, you know, and again, like, I'll speak to just, and this happens in many of work environments. It's not just in law firms. It's just like people will say things like, oh, we'll take the break that you need or whatever. But if I don't see my leaders taking breaks, if I see that it's acceptable for some people, but then other people get sort of talked you know, behind their back when they're not available for something or they're taking their child somewhere or they don't pick up a phone call on the weekend, then I assume it's really not acceptable. And so 
while again, you can't change everybody else around you. I think that there are some very specific things that we need to really reconcile for ourselves. And one, it's the mindset about what you're actually accomplishing in the time that you're working. I think like it is so antiquated for us to kind of look at this sort of butt and chair model as a means of productivity. You sitting at your computer for 12 hours during the day doesn't necessarily mean you're more productive than other people, especially again, speaking for our perfectionist friends, like (laughs) when you really like, what are you really accomplishing and who are you accomplishing it for? So there's questions around that and, and really asking yourself, okay, like what are the outcomes? What are the things that I actually need to do? And then asking yourself, like, what are the work conditions in which I work best? And remembering that as human beings, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, well, I'm different. I can just work, you know, for many hours straight. And I'm like, all right, fine. If that works for you, great. But like most people I know, we need a break. And I would really, really like consider, I, again, I'd, I'd almost started as a challenge. Like how much can I get away with that will still allow me to feel productive, but will give me some space to breathe. So for example, I tell people, most of us on average are not saving any person's life in the immediate moment. Like maybe you're doing something that is going to help someone, but like literally saving someone's life. Can you afford 20 minutes to eat a sandwich by yourself? Without maybe your computer. Right. And and like, is it possible? Or I, I think even just from like a vacation perspective, you know, like considering the types of vacations that will actually allow you to come back and be refreshed rather than setting yourself up for burnout. Um, I'd say like a a last portion of this that I think is really important for women is that, and I've seen this in myself, but I've seen in a lot of other women that I've worked with is this doing things that nobody is really asking us for anyway, where we do a lot. We're trying to overcompensate. We're trying to say the bar is high for us. I've got to do this. And if I don't do this, it's going to look a certain way. And pausing again to kind of consider like, is this what the ask is? And sometimes maybe it is, but I think a lot of the times it's you doing things that make you feel satisfied with yourself. And that's where like so much of our worth is tied to what we do. And I just think that we're so much more than that. And if we can reframe a little bit to ask ourselves, like, what's most important to me? Am I following up? Am I, you know, building the credibility that I desire because I do follow through with things that I say I'm going to do. Am I overpromising? Like there are some major questions to be asked here. I think from a very tangible perspective though, there's some research done by a man named Tal Ben-Shahar yeah. and he is out of Harvard, but I, I really think it's important. He talks about how as humans, we require three different types of breaks. Most of us are probably only good at one or two of them. So we require micro breaks, meso breaks, and macro breaks. Micro breaks are like maybe taking a five minute break every 30 minutes. Maybe you mm-hmm. go up and stretch, you look outside the window, like truly not doing anything else. Yes. Meso breaks would be like getting a nice, you know, night's rest of sleep, or even the type of thing is saying, you know what, I work maybe, you know, uh, you know, obviously Monday through Friday, and then maybe Saturday I do a little work, but Sunday I'm truly off, or maybe Saturday it's that you're truly off but really having an actual day of rest where you are dedicated to nothing else but yourself and your family or whatever it is that is important to you. And then there's the macro breaks, which he suggests that human beings should be taking at least four weeks out of the year to truly just break. You know, we, we might not be on the European side of things where the four weeks are all at once, but why not? Like they can be, if that's, if that's something that you feel comfortable with. But I think what's fascinating about that research isn't just like the three types of breaks. It's that, like I mentioned, most of us are probably only good at one. I know for me, 
I'm really good at all the things except for taking a long break. Like I'm so good at being like, let me do an extended three-day weekend or let me do this or let me do that. But it's like really what I actually have found that I've needed is like, I just need a week to myself. And I come back into work so much more prepared, so much more able, motivated, excited to actually try things, especially when they're hard. And so what I'd encourage people to do is to ask themselves, what types of breaks am I good at? And where is there some you know, room for opportunity here? I think there's a lot, that, you know, there's a lot to unpack there because I'm an, I'm a total proponent for what you're saying. You know, I wrote a book on this stuff. Like I, I'm a huge proponent for all that you're saying. And I think one of the problems is the way organizations, especially like for um, most organizations don't have that mentality whereby if you're on vacation, we're going to leave you alone. And that's, that's our philosophy. I feel like organizations have to start shifting into that because I, I, I do believe in it. I was actually talking to um, a client of mine. She's a partner at a law firm. And mm-hmm. I was telling her that I was going on vacation. And I, I do. I, I mean, I have to practice what I preach, right? <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> I, take, I take two weeks off uh, every summer. And I go mm-hmm. camp- on camping trips. So I'm really like spotty Wi-Fi and the whole thing. But I, yeah. I, I started doing that intentionally so that I couldn't cheat. But now mm-hmm. I just got into the habit of it. I've been doing it for a long time. And she said, well, how can you do that? Like, how can you, how can you leave for that long and not answer emails? And it's like, well, because I've trained my clients that, you know, right. exactly what you're saying. I'm not saving lives here. And sometimes I will get a coaching emergency but I always tell, you know, I'll respond to a text because that's part of my my philosophy is that if something is that urgent, like text me and I'll, I'll respond right. to it can, and I'll respond saying, how urgent is this? And can I can and I'd, I'd like it to wait till I get back. And ninety nine point nine nine percent of the time, that's it, because I'm not doing life saving work. And if you're an attorney and you're in contract or corporate or whatever it is, most of the time you can. But you've trained your clients and and the firm has trained you that you're not allowed to, to really unwind and take that time that you need. And I wish and I hope that that will change in the future. And I think it's starting to. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's it's funny that you bring that up because it's like with everything, like what you train people to do is how they will then show up. You know, like I, I have this conversation a lot of the time with like sales team where they're like, well, the person, you know, they, they emailed me and I'm like, well, what's happened is that every time they email you, you That's respond right. two seconds later. So they think that that is normal. That's and right. then like, you'll have teams who are in like different time zones. And it's like, you've got somebody in New York who's responding to somebody who's in like Malaysia. And I'm like, well, you're sleeping. So like, well, who, what do they expect? And it's like, I think communication norms are really helpful. And I love like what you just mentioned, Stephanie, about even helping your your clients sort of prioritize. Because when you give people a free-for-all, what's urgent to them might not actually be urgent to you. But if I have to think, okay, is this urgent enough to actually text Stephanie knowing That's that she's right. on this camping trip? You'd be surprised at how often people can solve their own problems. And I think yes. for so many of us, it's like, again, empowering people to be able to help themselves. Like that's one of the best things we can do. It's like, it's, 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 so, it's, so, it's so true, but again, it does take a lot of discipline. Like even that, like that idea of taking a full day off, like I'm going to take Saturdays off. And in a way I always recommend take, do something that takes you away from your computer. Like I, we were talking about the fact that you love uh, Peloton and I, I love Peloton, yeah. I love biking. And like, I probably on every single episode of my podcast, I talk about the fact that I love mountain biking so much. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I love about that is that, you know, you can't check your phone or you'll fall off your bike and that hurts a lot. 
Mm -hmm. So to take yourself and do something where your phone is not so like it's not so easy it's not so tempting to to pick it up is a great way to start training yourself to and even if you start with an hour or two hours of just total break time away from work it's it's something it's a place to start yeah i love it you got to start somewhere if you don't <laughs> you know it, the first step makes the rest of it much easier and one of the other questions like that kind of comes from this is when you're do when you're like let's just say you're a leader and you tell your team hey I really need a break. I really need some time off and I'm going to take it. You're showing yourself as being showing self-care, but you're also sharing some vulnerability, right? Like I need, to, mm -hmm. I need this break or I'm going to be really, you know, I'm going to burn out. Yeah. Is it okay to show vulnerability as a female leader? I absolutely believe so. And I think that what we have to do, like the only way to sort of change this narrative that vulnerability, especially as a woman in the workplace is a bad thing is by modeling that it can be done successfully. I think there's this narrative that being vulnerable or sharing how you're feeling emotionally is this hysterical experience. <laughs> and it's so interesting to me because so often I see men having hysterical experiences, oh, about yeah. things oh, yeah. that they don't like, or things that they have thoughts on where it's like, Hey, I need to do this because it's important for me. It really, what we're conducting is an opportunity to be firm with people about our own needs. We're setting boundaries. We're putting them in place. It doesn't have to involve tears. It doesn't have to involve people feeling like they don't know how to help the other person. But I think so often holding back from being open and vulnerable about what you're experiencing as if like, you know, we are able to come to work and just completely compartmentalize like who we are as humans, right. I think is what ends up putting us in a position where we end up having these sort of outbursts that unfortunately leads people to say, women are a certain way, or women are too emotional, or women are too this or too that. So I, I would just consider like remembering that emotions are things that can be communicated verbally and they can be communicated uh, with firmness and they can be communicated in a way that is productive. And it'll be just about us remembering that we're modeling not only a, a better way for people to think about what vulnerability looks like in the workplace, but also making it safe for other people to communicate their needs to us as well. Uh, so often the hysterics come and the stress comes and the burnout and the panic attacks come because people have been prohibited from expressing what's really going on. And by that time it's too late. Right. You can't compartment. You're not just one part of a person. You're the whole, you're the whole thing. Exactly. I love, you know, I really love that. And as we're starting to come up to the end of our, our time together, uh, we've covered a lot and I know that I, we can keep going and I hope, I hope I can have you back. Cause there's like so many, of course, there's so many more things I want to talk to you about, but you know, from going from perfectionism to vulnerability and everything in between today, um, as we leave our listeners, what do you think are the, I always do like the two tips in two minutes. What are yeah. two tips? that you actionable tips that you can give to our listeners in the next two minutes? Yeah. So, all right. The first one that I will say in order to care for anybody, you've got to care for yourself. And so I would just encourage you this week, the week after whatever, take 30 minutes, 30 minutes of time that is dedicated to you. Like Stephanie said, maybe it's a Peloton ride. Maybe this is meditation. I know for me, the way this looks is like, the mornings are my time. Like I will wake up earlier in the morning to just have a moment because it'll allow me to show up for myself and for other people 
in a way that makes it feel purposeful and intentional. So time some time for yourself. Um, and then the, the next thing, just from like our ability to lead well, get curious, start asking questions and think about your questions as an opportunity to learn how to better support people. People are going to listen to their own thoughts and feelings before they listen to what you have to say. And so if you can understand what motivates them, it'll make it much easier to connect with them, make it much easier for them to trust that you have their best interests at heart. Great tips. Thank you so much, Masala. For anybody who's interested, uh, she works at Life Labs. Check it out. It's very cool. It'll be also on our show notes. So you'll get uh, a link to her bio and her organization. And thank you so much for being on the show today. You have so much to offer. I'm actually going to put a lot of this into my own practice, especially the whole idea of like the camera when, yeah. uh, when you're in a room. I love that idea. So thank you so much for your time today. It's been amazing to talk with you. Of course, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Her Gavel. Make sure to subscribe and rate us. For our show notes and information on upcoming episodes, visit our website at hergavel.com. And if you'd like more information about coaching, training, or any of my books, please send email to stephanie at hergavel.com. Be sure to stay tuned for our next episode of Her Gavel, where we will continue to shadow the glass ceiling for women in law.